0: This is WMPG, I'm Dr. Anne, and this is Safe Space Radio, a show about courage, the courage to talk about the things that are the hardest to bring up, but that we think about the most. Today is part of our ongoing series about the untold stories of dementia, and I'm going to be speaking with Carol Bradley Bursak about sibling conflict and caregiving for relatives with dementia. Carol Bradley-Bursack is an author, a speaker, a consultant, and a columnist about issues to do with caregiving. She's the author of the book, Minding Our Elders, Caregivers Share Their Personal Stories. Carol likes to describe this as a portable support group, and it's filled with people telling the stories of what it's like to be a caregiver. Welcome to Safe Space, Carol.
1: Thank you, Dr. Ann. Wonderful to be here.
0: So I understand from reading some of your work that you have a a level of personal experience with this topic, which is kind of extraordinary, that you have looked after an elderly neighbor as well as six elderly members of your family, four of whom had dementia. Is that right? That's
1: right. I had uh, the privilege uh, as well as the exhaustion and everything that goes along with it of juggling uh, health needs for uh, my neighbor and then eventually an aunt and uncle who had no children, my in-laws and my parents. And so uh, for a while I had five at one time who were alive living in different situations that I was trying to keep tabs on. So it it was a busy time, but it's also gratifying and nothing, you know, even though there were times when I I wonder if i ever get through it, I would never, ever have um, given this up for anything.
0: It feels worth just spending, I know we're going to be talking about sibling conflict, but when you describe it as gratifying, how is it gratifying for you?
1: Uh, I, to me, it's gratifying to, to um, see a semblance of happiness or sometimes contentment as best we can get when someone's in pain or doesn't understand things well. Uh, if you could just make somebody's moment a little better, even if they can't make their day better, it means a lot. And often that's the little things. It's a touch. It's the, uh, I think right now my mother remembering her toothpicks. <laughs> <laughs> you know, something as simple as that. Uh, the discomforts, these little discomforts, you can, you can uh, help them out with, because the, sometimes we can't do big things. They just are not at a point in their lives where we can work miracles. But the little things, the small things. We can do for them, um, and you see that it helps them. Uh, this is enormously gratifying.
0: So you were—you were the one person who remembered that she really liked to use a toothpick.
1: Well, yes, and I was every day, just about. Um, well, this—you realize this was over a twenty-year period c- caring for all these people, and toward the end, three of my elders were alive in the last years, and I was working a full-time job as well. But I knew what they needed, and I stopped. And uh, they were in a nursing home at the time, very close to my home. But I still was there uh, nearly every day. I mean, I had them spoiled, I'll have to admit that. (laughs) But my sister kind of teases me about this because she says, you tell them to do what you didn't do, which is true. I think um, I probably should have set more boundaries than I did. But it was a learning process. And it's where my life ended up going uh, as a writer. I'd always been a writer, but this is where it it turned. Instead of the great American novel, I ended up writing about elder care.
0: You mentioned that your sister said that she thought you maybe could have had a few better boundaries around caregiving. So that leads us right to our topic around uh, sibling relationships in caregiving. So here you are. You looked after both parents and both your, your in-laws, but we'll stay with your parents maybe for now. Was your sister involved as much as you, and how did it work out, you know, the balance of who did what between you?
1: Uh, I was very fortunate when it came to um, my sister and I I happened to be the one who lived in town where all the elders were, so it was kind of a natural. You know, they need, they need somebody nearby to check on them, and, and my mom fell a lot. We had a personal alarm. I was constantly being called by, you know, the dispatcher to run over to her house. Uh, I was going from place to place, grocery shopping, all these kinds of things someone in town can do. And uh, my sister lived about 50 miles away, and I have to give her enormous credit in that she would drive the 50 miles nearly every Saturday, young children in tow, to come in and visit our parents and then drive back. And it's not easy for a young mother who's working full-time, and, and she did everything she possibly could. I have a brother who's many hundreds of miles away and uh, is in a situation that's hard to get away from, so he wasn't there as often. And so I do have stories to tell about, you know, when somebody comes once a year and shows up and you've been telling them how bad mom or dad's doing, then they walk in and mom and dad is finally, they're so thrilled to see them, you know. (laughs) They come out of this slump (laughs) and then nobody believes what you're saying. But I can't say I have any personal complaints, but boy, have I heard them from my readers.
0: It's striking to me, too, that sort of the two girls are closer and did more.
1: Right, and, and that's not unusual, and e- it isn't even terribly unusual if there's a girl where it's slightly less um, comfortable for her to help and a brother say that's closer if the girl still does it.
0: I think women are so socialized to be caregivers, it's just well,
1: and they are. Uh, however, more men are jumping into it.
0: part of what I understand is that while we often imagine that all the siblings will pull together and share the the responsibilities, that in fact, it's really the norm 75% of the time that one of the siblings is really the primary caregiver.
1: Nearly always. I don't know if that's really avoidable. I think it can be divided up in many ways. And of course, ideally, everybody would take their turn and do just as much. But I, I do think, realistically speaking, often you'll find Big Brother is the one who takes care of the financial things and maybe the out-of-town sister um, takes care of some of the, say, lining up some kinds of help, and then the in-town person is the one who does the actual hands-on care. Um, Many times, however, I hear from people where it's only the person in town doing it, and and there's denial by the other siblings who are not seeing their parents. They don't want to hear it. They don't want to know anything about it. Other than mom and dad are doing fine, they have no clue that you have given up your life to take care of the parents, and frankly, they don't want to know. And this is uh, often the case. And then when it comes to making a major decision, then they come in and they want to make these decisions and they don't have any real basis for it.
0: Right, so you can imagine the resentment of the one at home who's who's given up their life, let's say her life, since that seems to be yeah. more common to take care of this elderly relative with dementia, the sibling far away is denying it, minimizing it, and thereby not having to feel guilty about not helping much, (laughs) presumably. How do you advise the caregiver uh, who is doing it? How do you help a person like that if they turn to you for help?
1: Oh, I give them several little suggestions, though in the end, every family is unique just as every person is unique. And some of us really... You know, our fighters, others, just don't want any more stress. Um, as I said, I was fortunate in my situation, but if I were in the situation that some of these people who talk to me are in, I probably would think, I don't want any more stress. If they don't want to help, I'm just doing this. But a lot of the people are really resentful, and I, what I tell them is try to give them a chance. I realize you're the one who's worn out. You're the one who's given up so much but you're going to have to be the bigger person one more time. And if you say specifically, uh, you know, Jill, can you please come and watch mom for three days while I get a break? Or, you know, Jim, can you take care of these uh, Medicare papers and stuff for me? If you say something specific, sometimes they actually will say, oh, all right, we'll do that. But if you just say I need help, often you know that goes unheard. And as far as boundaries and resentments, sometimes they're not even speaking to each other. And I'll say, send a very nice, not angry, a very nice email. Email does come in handy here um, to your siblings. Explain this is how mom is, this is how dad is, this is the help we need. I just want you to know that I'd love to have your help with this and then leave it at that. And if you get no help, then you either have to accept it and get on with things or just keep fighting. And that's pretty much up to the person.
0: Mm. So let's take a step back for a minute because I, I know that you've dealt with this so often that you kind of have some ways that you've learned to understand how sibling rivalry, how sibling conflict comes up around caregiving. How do you uh, understand it?
1: I understand it as I do think that there is a child inside of all of us that wants to please our parents. Um, there's also a child that wants to deny that our parents have any weakness, that they can still always be there for us, and they're, they're not failing. Their brain is not dissolving. Um, they are not so needy. I believe that birth order, old sibling grudges, all of these things. People can have been, you know, really good friends with their, with their siblings or at least get along well at gatherings and all these kinds of things because not much is demanded of them. But as soon as mom and dad fall apart, they're the core of the family. And then some of these childish issues, and boy, can they get childish. They'll be at each other's throat over something that adults just, should be able to work out. And what would be
0: an example of a really childish conflict? What do you have in mind?
1: Oh, it can be mom and dad have always come to our house for dinner, and they're coming even if you don't think they're, they're well enough to go. This is how it's always been. This is how the way I want it. If you, don't want to, want, if you don't bring them, I'll never talk to you again. Or yeah. something of that nature. I mean, just a ridiculous... Over the top thing. Or I don't like the wet clothes you're putting on mom. I'm bringing her in different clothes. She's going to wear this because she always used to like it, even if it's no longer comfortable for her. But these small little nitpicky things because they're still fighting over their, their status with the parent in some way, that little kid inside, and they want the parent to offer praise they may not be able to offer. One of the hardest things is you try so hard, you take time away from your children. You take time away from your spouse. You take time away from work. Your parent is ill. They hurt. They may have dementia. And all you want to hear is thank you. And oftentimes they're saying, why did you steal my sweater? I can't find my sweater. And people just fall apart. And, you know, that's understandable. It's understandable because they're not feeling like anything in their life is working. And so what I have to tell them there, too, is that, okay, that little kid inside of you wants mom and dad to say, you know, good job. And of course, we'd all love that. But we have to be big people now and understand that they are beyond that. And in their hearts, in their soul, they do appreciate it, even if they can't say it.
0: There's so much grief behind what you're saying, as I think about it. You know, the grief of that things really have changed and I have to face that. Right. Or that I can't be, you know, that I can't get the love from maybe mom or dad that I always wished for, that I, you know, I think people hold out a hope, yeah. sometimes all their lives, that finally they'll get loved in the way that they wish they had been. And dementia can really spell the end of that hope that it's probably never going to happen, not for everyone, but for some. And so it can be so hard to accept the lack of thanks. It makes sense you feel invisible to your parent, yet again, kind of thing.
1: Right. And even though they understand intellectually that, you know, the parent has this, even the person who's going every day and sees them every day, it's still very hard on the heart when, uh, well, a little story from my time was I was, my dad had been, uh, was in a situation where I had become his office manager. I mean, I had made him business cards, I wrote letters and mailed them to him. I did all of these things because the only way he was happy was to feel like he was accomplishing things and um, I went back to full-time work in a news library the last three years and I was going to the nursing home nearly every day but I couldn't spend as long and he had a moment of some clarity which happens now and then with dementia and he said you're not as good an office manager as you used to be you're not doing as much, and I just teared up, which I rarely did, around him, and I said, I'm doing all I can, Dad, and he stopped for a minute, and he shook his head, and he says, I know, mm-hmm. and I'm tearing up now, when I remember it, but they do understand even if they can't express it, and uh, a humor is, avail- is good here, too. <laughs> that reminded me of a little story about my mom's. I used to have a game with her kind of with. Uh, in the fall and spring. I would switch out her seasonal clothing and bring new things. And um, the last time I had done that, as I was walking out of the, her room in the nursing home, the housekeeper was standing in the hallway, and I could tell she was just going to burst out laughing. And she said, do you know what your mom told me? And I said, what? And she said, you're taking her clothes to wear to work. <sighs> And I really didn't need her polyester pants and her her (laughs) sweatshirt with the bird on the front. You know, I mean, they were great for her. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And that's so hurtful, though. And yet I had to keep a sense of humor. But this happens so often. They can't find something. Who's the person they turn on? The person they feel safe with. Yes. And that's you. Yes. So you you have to, uh, I don't know, thicken your skin. You have to grow up enough to realize that your parent is still your parent and they love you but they can't be what they once were to you. And a little segue from that, because I want to be very clear about this, is I'm very strong on the dignity of the elder. I don't even like the terms parenting your parent, role reversal, or any of those things, because never did I let the fact roam from my mind, no matter what I was doing for them. They were still my parents. I was not parenting them. Even though what I did a lot was what you do for children, I just really, I don't know, I'm, I'm very strong on that. I feel you have to keep in mind that this person is still your parent.
0: And what makes that so important to you?
1: They just, we need to keep in mind that even though this person is frail and physically and mentally and they can't remember names and they may shuffle along or just sit and stare into space, this person is a full person who has a legacy of many years and that needs to be respected. And we don't know what's going inside of these on inside of these people all the time either. We cannot be sure that a person with stage 7 Alzheimer's who is staring into space doesn't pull in body language, some kind of vibes on how you're feeling, negativity, those kinds of things. So I think we need to be very careful and always... Keep in mind, these are adults, these are our parents, and they deserve our respect no matter how upset we are.
0: (laughs) Yes, no, I hear that. You come from a place of deep honoring. You really want to honor the person. Absolutely. Yes, I I appreciate that very much. I I want to talk about another kind of not uncommon sibling struggle that can happen, which is around inheritance. And um, I've heard it too often where one sibling will become the caregiver and often say, move into the house where the parent is living and take over everything and and often really sacrifice the rest of their life to become this full-time caregiver and then maybe that parent before they became too ill to do so changes their will so that the the child who's given so much is given the house say or given some increased amount of the will because of their sacrifice and then after the person dies or after the other siblings learn about this there is great conflict and I'm curious to you know, do you see that? And if so, what do you advise them about this arrangement?
1: I don't feel I have the credentials to go into families and mediate. You almost need a family mediator or, or an attorney for something like that. But uh, when people ask me, I moderate some forums. I get many emails. I write a column. My uh, feeling is, best case scenario, the family should agree ahead of time, okay, this person is is becoming a primary caregiver, They should be paid a certain amount, if the parent can afford it, some can, some can't, for their time, uh, because otherwise they'd have to hire strangers. And that's a good way to do it. If they wait for the will, I think it's very, very important that these siblings know ahead of time that this is how it's going. I'm not saying it's not going to keep some of them from being angry, because people who have not been an on-call 24-7 caregiver do not, have a feel for what it's like to never really be able to be away from it, not to be able to relax, always on call. And it, and it looks kind of easy from the outside. Oh, you just go over there for a couple hours and do this, or you pick up some groceries for them, what's a the big deal? And that the, the big deal is that you are in charge. You're running to the emergency room when they fall. You're always, always on call. So it's sometimes even, no matter how well it's put out ahead of time, there's this conflict because people simply don't understand, and people can get pretty ugly over money anyway. So I would, what I, I would advise ahead of time is that they all talk this out while yeah. the parents are still healthy. That's ideal.
0: So just so I'm clear about that, what, what I'm hearing you say is that you think it might be helpful to actually establish a salary for the person who's the primary caregiver.
1: It depends on the family, but I I would almost recommend that and then have papers drawn up. And this is assuming that the money is there, that the parents have something that they would be paying an outsider to do. Usually a family member can do it for less money, though some people, if they have to quit their jobs, which I did for a while, you know, you quit your job, you're losing Social Security, you're losing all kinds of things, so it's kind of fair if the family can come up with at least some payment then, and then that way when the will is being, you know, when it's all over with, if there's anything left after caregiving, uh, then it would be divided up equally, and it's probably less hard on the, you know, less fighting, fighting. One thing about, another thing I'd like to add, though, you mentioned this inheritance, and this is, (laughs) I've seen this happen even more often than what you're mentioning, is that, The person who's with the parents all the time, taking care of them, says they really need 24-hour nursing care in a nursing home or they'd be much safer in assisted living or something of that nature. The distant sibling says, Oh, no, I never put mom in anything like that. And that sounds like they're just so caring. And sometimes it is, but often it's, I don't want to spend mom's money on her care. And they know how expensive that's going to be and that you're going to go through any money that was saved. And so this is what a lot of people deal with. They know that their, their siblings know they're getting a bargain and they want some inheritance left. And that's really a terrible reason not to get mom and dad the care they deserve with their own money. But it happens a lot.
0: Right, and it speaks to a much larger kind of national social problem, which is how do we care for our elders and how do we make this affordable? And we haven't figured this out as a culture, I don't think.
1: No, we haven't, and and it's sad because these days, most of the, I don't know if it's most, but probably statistically, most of the couples, if you're even lucky enough to have a husband and wife, are both working outside the home. You're trying to take care of the children, so that means that trying to bring an elder into the mix and take good care of them is very difficult, so that means you have to hire outside care. Okay, where does the money come from? And this is what our culture isn't addressing. Right. It's just, we we, we have these old values that we'd like, but the realistic part of it doesn't really work into that.
0: Right. I think another way in which our culture is sort of changing and we haven't caught up with it is around medical care at the end of life. Right. So the last question I want to ask you about is the scenario where um, a parent has advanced dementia and say the parent gets pneumonia, which is very common with dementia. And that one of the siblings wants everything to be done, aggressive care, full ICU, you know, everything needed. And the other siblings are saying, isn't it time to let her go? And the way the medical system works, of course, is that if there's even one person saying you have to do everything, the doctors will do everything because they don't want to get sued. Do you think that's changing? Does that, how often does that happen? I do think that
1: pushing, pushing, pushing for living wills, health directives, clinics and hospitals push for that now, even if they're going to trim your toenails. They want to know if you've got a health directive. Right. And it's very smart. Um, families often shy away from getting the POA done, getting the, the power of attorney, getting the health directive, all of the things needed written down on paper, because they don't want to think about somebody dying. They don't, you know, and often it's the children who don't want to think of their parents dying. Sure. But they don't get around to the nitty-gritty of what would you want under these circumstances? And of course, none of us can for- foresee every circumstance, but if you have a conversation with your parents as a family, not just... So now one day we're going to talk about this, but ongoing communication. All of the children, adult children, should start to get a feel. What would mom or dad want? And generally the person who's doing the most caregiving has the best view of that. But it, there again, so many of these things are about open communication, and, and honestly that I'm afraid that's an idealistic way to look at it. But it really is. If people can, in our culture we don't like death. I mean, we, we, you're not supposed to let people die. That's why doctors were trained, oh, we lost him, and he's 98, and <laughs> right, right. <laughs> you know, not in good shape. And I think things are improving with, with things like the hospice movement. They're saying people deserve a dignified death. They deserve choices. They deserve to say what they want. But it's still a long way from getting families to sit down and have these conversations ahead of time where they can really say to their lucid parent, gee, what would you want if you had the same problem that Jim, your neighbor, had? What would you want to do? And, and, and get these ideas from your parents and make sure all of the siblings know this because I do think that helps in the end.
0: So one last thing in clothing, which is about um, the shame and the stigma that goes with having sibling conflict, as a grown-up. You know, it's one thing, we know kids fight with each other as kids, we sort of come to expect that. But I understand that when you have tried to find someone who's willing to tell their story about sibling conflict, people suddenly clam up and don't don't want to go there.
1: They do not want to go there, and I have even asked, I was contacted, um, I believe it was a Katie Couric show, where they were going to do one of these shows on sibling conflicts, and one of their PR people contacted me and said, can you find somebody? So I actually put a note out on, you know, my all my social networking, and I even had a few people here in town that I knew had these issues. And I just kindly said, would you and your sister be able to, you know, be willing to talk about this right away? We don't have any conflicts and i just want it blah blah blah. blah, blah. <laughs> what were you just telling me the other day but they do not want it and it's unfortunate because every family has a certain amount of conflicts. People are ashamed. You know, they want to give this picture of a family being a unit. And yes. siblings often weren't a unit when they were growing up and then when they face their parents uh, going downhill physically and mentally, they, they just fall apart and they're even less of a unit.
0: Well, you started out by saying, you know, that we all have like a, a little kid in us that's still trying to please the parents, right. and I think part of the shame too is it rem- we feel so childish inside, and it's such a horrible feeling, you know, to 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 see one's own behavior. When we all like to think of ourselves as mature and rational.
1: <laughs> yeah, and then when you when you don't act like you're mature with your siblings under some circumstance. This is where humor can come in if you can find it, but people will find themselves, even after a death, fighting over the silliest things uh, because there's this pain. There's pain inside, and, and they don't know what to do with it. And so it comes out lashing at each other, and, and you know, that's, it's just a difficult thing. But I do think most of it goes back to the fact that the parents were the core of the family. They held the family together all those years. And then suddenly you're on your way to being an orphan, And I'll tell you, it hit me one day when my sister said, well, now you're the matriarch, and I'm going, oh, my goodness. (laughs) Mm. That really gives me a strange feeling because I'm next up, and that's also really hard to accept. We don't like these changes, and we want to be the little kid protected by the parent. And, you know, life goes on, and, and that's not how it stays.
0: Carol Bradley Bursek I want to thank you so much for being my guest on Safe Space. It's been wonderful to learn from you. Thank you, you
1: Dr. Anne. It's been wonderful.
0: So if someone wants to learn more about your work, I know you are a regular blogger and have at least two websites. What's the best address for someone to find you and more about your work?
1: The most direct way to find me is just to go to www.mindingourelders.com. And on that site, you'll, you can click for the blog and the book, and all kinds of other things. And the blog is updated every day. So there are many stories. I write for several big websites, and those there are links there that people can follow.
0: Thank you. I've been speaking to Carol Bradley Bursek about sibling conflict in caregiving for a parent or a relative with dementia. If you would like to listen to this whole show and didn't get to, or if you'd like to email a link to a friend, please go to our website at safespaceradio.com. You can sign up there to get a weekly link to that week's show. You can also download the show from iTunes onto your phone and listen during your commute. You can like us on Facebook. I want to thank today Gabe Graben for producing the show, and I want to just take a moment to honor and remember Gabe's grandmother, Claudia Palms, who died this weekend with dementia. She was 94 And our thoughts and conversations about Claudia have been an underlying source of inspiration during this whole series. So I'm dedicating this show to Claudia and her family today. I want to thank today also Maurice Lennon for the music, Jim Russell for being my consultant. Coming up next is Speak Freely.